Welcome to the Rebel Core Content Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beckesby. So Swami, when we were talking about different topics to do for the podcast, I said I really wanted to do something that felt Halloween-y because I love October and I love Halloween. I went down some rabbit holes reading about how the medical condition porphyria could explain the legend of the vampire. Porphyria affects heme synthesis and some patients suffer from itching rashes and blisters on their skin if they're exposed too long to the sunlight. And in severe cases, their gums can recede, giving them prominent teeth. This is super fascinating to read about and the disease is something we should probably know about. But given how rare it is, it just didn't seem to fit our core mission of core content. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I, I will have to say in 15 years, I don't think I've ever diagnosed porphyria in the emergency department. I don't think I've even seen a patient who carried the diagnosis of porphyria in the emergency department. So I, I agree with you. Probably not the topic we should be diving into. So what did you pick instead? So to satisfy my love of Halloween, I came up with Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. But that's a broken heart syndrome, right? Yes, it is. It's associated with emotional stress like sadness. But what if it was associated with fear? This is how one could quite literally be scared to death. All right. So this is bringing back all of those images of me going through a haunted house and thinking I was going to die from fear. And now you're telling me that that actually could happen. And so I should avoid haunted houses altogether. Uh, I think this is a great topic to get into because while we don't see it a ton, we do encounter this disorder. We do have to know about it. Yeah. So let's dive in. All right. Stress cardiomyopathy goes by many names, including Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, apical ballooning syndrome, broken heart syndrome, and stress-induced cardiomyopathy. It's a syndrome in which the patient has transient regional systolic dysfunction of the left ventricle, and clinically it mimics a myocardial infarction. But when the patient gets an angiogram, there's no evidence of obstructive coronary artery disease or acute plaque rupture. The term takotsubo is from the Japanese name for an octopus trap, which has a shape that's similar to the systolic apical ballooning appearance of the left ventricle, which is seen in the most common form of this disorder. The patients will present looking very similar to an acute coronary syndrome or a STEMI, and they often will have chest pain and shortness of breath. The less common presentation is syncope. And Jenny, this is actually the first patient I ever saw had a syncopal event and then came in hypotensive with a worrisome ECG. According to the International Takotsubo Registry, that's approximately 75 or 8% of patients who will come in with syncope. The classic patient population that we think about is the elderly female patient. And again, according to the International Takotsubo Registry, about 90% of patients with Takotsubo are women, and the mean age is around 66 years. Like you said, Swami, these patients usually present looking like typical ACS. I want to get into how we can distinguish this from the classic ACS, but first let's just mention quickly why we should really care. These patients will quite likely have an ECG with some changes and a positive troponin, in which case we're often just going to go on autopilot, get cardiology involved, get the patient to the cath lab. These patients will often get their definitive diagnosis in the cath lab when they're found to have clean coronaries. But put yourself in an emergency department that doesn't have a cath lab, a drip-and-ship type institution. Since they have no obstructive disease, they aren't going to benefit from thrombolytics. You might be tempted to give those if you haven't considered this diagnosis. But since they wouldn't benefit, they would really only be susceptible to some negative outcomes from those medications. So let's get into what might tip you off that this is the real underlying pathology. Let's start with the ECG. In acute MI, we do expect to see ST changes in a particular distribution. Now, you might see that in stress-induced cardiomyopathy as well, but the ECG presentation is pretty variable. About 11% of patients will have a normal ECG. 
but they can also have ST and T wave changes, ST elevation, transient left bundle branch blocks, and dysrhythmias. Interestingly, the most characteristic Takotsubo ECG is prolongation of the QTC interval, which is seen at presentation, and it can peak in length 24 to 48 hours after presentation. But it's hard to know whether this is a gender-related difference, since most of the patients once again are women, and women tend to have slightly longer QTC intervals at baseline. Okay, so the ECG is not going to be super helpful in distinguishing this from your classic ACS. Right, exactly. It can look like any other ACS patient. So let's think about the labs. Most patients with Takotsubo will have an elevated troponin as well as an elevated BNP, which you don't always get in ACS patients, and we don't often expect to be elevated in the acute MI phase. This may help distinguish this illness and make you think more about Takotsubo in the appropriate patient. But the money really is going to be in bedside echo. The labs, the ECG, they're just not sensitive enough or not specific enough for us to make this diagnosis. What we need to do is try to incorporate a quick bedside echo into your assessment of the patient with chest pain and ACS. And we're also going to have to know then what we're going to be looking for. What echo findings are we going to see? In an acute MI, you would expect to see a focal wall motion abnormality that matches with the ECG changes that you see. But what about in the patient with Takotsubo? So in contrast, Takotsubo patients will generally have decreased left ventricular function with a mean LVEF of 40-41%. They will show wall motion abnormalities, but unlike the segmental wall motion abnormality of an acute MI, these patients will have wall motion abnormalities in one of a few specific patterns. The typical, most common, is the apical type. This is where you see systolic apical ballooning of the LV, which reflects depressed mid and apical segments. You often have hyperkinesis of the basal walls as well, and this can be seen in up to 82% of patients. There are a couple of other variants you may see. These include the mid-ventricular type, which is the second most common type. Here you have ventricular hypokinesis of the mid-ventricle with relative sparing of the apex. Then you also have the basal type. Here you'll have hypokinesis of the base and sparing of the mid-ventricle and apex. This is called reverse or inverted Takotsubo. Now, of course, just to make everything a little bit more complicated, there's also a focal variant. So this is a rare variant where there is dysfunction of an isolated segment, and this is going to look even more like an acute MI. And then finally, there's also the global type of depression in which the patients simply have global hypokinesis. Okay, so if you see any of these findings, we might be pretty sure we're dealing with Takotsubo rather than an acute MI. We should stress, again, the workup and treatment should go along typical ACS STEMI lines as needed until this diagnosis is made clear. But let's assume it's not a direct cath lab STEMI. We have echo findings that suggest Takotsubo. Let's get into the management. All right, so we want to treat them again as STEMI or ACS. So you're going to activate your cardiology team. You're going to talk to your cath lab and say, I've got a patient with ECG findings that are concerning for STEMI, but I've also got these echo findings that are more concerning for Takotsubo. We're going to need your help to suss this out. The special treatments that we need to make sure we're doing are monitoring for QTC interval prolongation and dysrhythmias, which we should be also looking for in STEMI patients as well. As we mentioned, these patients are often going to have a prolonged QTC, and it might actually get longer over time. That's one of the factors that we have to consider in these increased early dysrhythmic complications. So this means we want to make sure that we're stopping any QT prolonging drugs the patient might be on. We want to replete our electrolytes, so potassium, magnesium, and calcium as well. 
If these patients decompensate, you should be aware that the management will differ slightly from your usual cardiogenic shock, and that's because much of the time the patient will have LV outflow tract obstruction. If the patient has pump failure with no LV outflow tract obstruction, you can treat with inotropes such as dobutamine or dopamine. We try to avoid catecholamines if possible since the disease process may be caused by excess of catecholamine in the first place. However, if the patient does have LV outflow tract obstruction, you need to treat them similarly to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You want to avoid inotropic agents that might actually worsen that obstruction. The initial therapy here is actually going to be beta blockers. This can decrease the obstruction and allow for improved hemodynamics. This is always a little tough unless you really have that definitive echo in place because you've got a patient who's a little shocky and you're waiting in with beta blockers. But you can always start with something like Esmolol that's short acting and then, you know, take it away if you get into trouble. If you need to add some kind of a vasopressor agent, I probably would reach for phenylephrine over things like norepinephrine or epinephrine, again, because those are going to give more catecholamines. And if the disease is caused by catecholamine excess, we might actually make that worse. But you can see how difficult it is to figure out how to manage these patients. And Jenny, we kind of talked about this offline. There's no randomized control trials telling us how to manage patients with Takotsubo. This is a lot of physiology and expert opinion, and that's probably the best we're ever going to get on this particular disorder. Now, whatever you're doing, you have to be cautious, especially when you're waiting in with vasopressors like phenylephrine, because you can precipitate increased afterload, which might be actually harder for the patient to pump, and that's going to cause more problems down the line. If all of this fails and these patients are going down the drain, they may require an intraaortic balloon pump or ECMO in refractory cases. So I think, Jenny, the most important thing here for us to consider, for us to leave people with, is that patients with Takotsubo should be managed like ACS or STEMI. In fact, you should assume that that's what's going on and treat them in that pathway because most of the time, if you see ST elevations that are new on an ECG in a patient with chest pain and shortness of breath, it's going to be a myocardial infarction, and they should be treated with lytics if you don't have a cath lab, shipping them for a cath lab, all the things that we usually do. But this is just something to keep in the back of your mind if you've got like the right story. The patient had this stressful event. They had a syncopal episode. Now they've got this ECG. If you can get that formal echo or if you're really good with your echo skills and you see these uh, strange patterns of decreased LV function, then maybe you can start thinking about Takotsubo. But I'll tell you that in lieu of something that is really definitive, I'm going to go down that ACS-STEMI pathway every single time. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing that we mentioned offline was that this is one of those diagnoses that's the reason we can't blow off the little old lady with the stressful event who maybe have felt faint. You know, this is the bad diagnosis that that little old lady might have. So take those things seriously. I think that's a really great point because we often are like, oh, they were stressed out. They've got a little chest pain. Everything's going to be fine. But this is something we do need to think about. All right, Jenny, how about getting us some take-home points? Absolutely. First, this looks like ACS or STEMI with patients presenting with chest pain, dyspnea, or maybe syncope. It looks like ACS and it should be treated as such until you prove it to yourself that it's not. Next, the classic patient to worry about is the older woman with a stressful event. Third, the bedside echo will show LV dysfunction with one of a variety of patterns of wall motion abnormality. The most common is apical, but there's also patterns of midventricular, basal, focal, and global. Next, watch for QTC prolongation as this could precipitate an arrhythmia. Stop all QTC prolonging medications and replete your electrolytes aggressively. And last, consider this in the differential in the patient who has cardiogenic shock because the treatment differs a little bit. 
avoid catecholamines, and if you need inotropic support, use dobutamine or dopamine. And look for evidence of LV outflow tract obstruction as this would be treated like a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with beta blockers rather than with inotropes. That's all for the Rebel Core Content Podcast this week. Jenny and I will be back in two weeks with another cast. If you want to check out more from Rebel EM, hop on over to the site at rebelem.com for all the posts from our amazing team, and we'll see you next week.